right on Prime Snack. Greetings all, it's Vanessa Cardi here. Today I'm joined by the one, the only, Dr. Steve Brown. Steve is, of course, well known to the Right on Prime universe, as he is half of our fantastic PCMA team, as well as being a residency director and award-winning family medicine educator. Welcome back, Steve, and thanks so much for joining me for this snack on lab tests and how to reduce them. Thank you. It's great to be here. Vanessa, limiting unnecessary testing is one of my favorite topics. But what made you think of this right now? Well, I don't know about you, but where I work, this COVID pandemic has strained our healthcare system to the max. I mean, it's affecting staffing and also requiring that our lab technicians do so many more lab tests. For example, in my healthcare region, which serves about 18,000 people, our lab requests have gone up by over 600% in two years. Wow. I mean, some of those are COVID swabs, but labs are under strain. So in an effort to alleviate some of that pressure, I was tasked with going through all of our common labs and figuring out which ones we don't really need to do or which ones we can kind of cut down on. It was actually a really interesting and eye-opening process, so I thought we'd look at a few examples here. Yes, I love this idea, Vanessa. Less is more. Not only are unnecessary tests wasteful, they can also cause harm. We've learned on Right on Prime and PCMA about the Choosing Wisely campaigns and improving stewardship of healthcare resources in general. So what do we say that we only do tests that we have a good clinical reason for and that will actually impact our management? I think that sounds like a fantastic plan. Now, before we get started, there's a quick caveat. A lot of what we are talking about here is based on the US and Canadian reality. So there might be variations from country to country. But everything we are presenting is based on sound evidence and could perhaps be used as a discussion launching point for other jurisdictions, so hopefully it's going to be helpful to many folks around the world. All right, Cardi, what do you want to tackle first? Let's start with skin cultures. Oh my. So you have a patient who presents with a wound for the first time, and someone decides to take a swab, either so they can prescribe antibiotics right off the bat, and that way they have, I guess, a record of what was there before the antibiotics were started, or because they aren't going to start antibiotics and they want to know what is going on in the wound. But there is really no need to do this. Not surprisingly, most wound cultures show either normal skin flora or polymicrobial flora, and these results will very rarely change management. Cultures are costly and they're time-consuming, and if they aren't going to change what you do for the patient, then skip the swab. Now, clearly, if the patient isn't responding to treatment or if there's some other clinical concern, then of course you're going to swab in that context. But aside from these cases, For simple, uncomplicated wounds or even acne lesions, please, no cultures. Yeah, it's the same as if you're doing an incision and drainage on an abscess and there's no complicating features. I've seen many settings where people order a wound culture, but you definitely don't need to do a wound culture. Doesn't really matter what's growing inside the abscess because you've drained it. Asking for a wound culture to confirm that what you drained was polymicrobial and, of course, super gross doesn't get you anywhere in those straightforward cases. Awesome. So we are in agreement. Let's skip the wound cultures in those simple cases. Yes. Now, moving on. For any of you generalists out there who also do inpatient medicine, this one is for you. It is almost routine for ward patients to have sort of daily labs ordered. Usually this consists of a CBC, creatinine, electrolytes as a minimum, with perhaps 
a VBG and a lactate thrown in if the patient's there for sort of infectious or respiratory disorders. In the first day or so of an acute admission, this might make sense as treatment effects from what was initiated in the ER being monitored, you know, and you're assessing the patient's clinical evolution. But after that, their utility plummets. If a pneumonia patient's white blood cell count is 22 on admission and goes to 14 the next day, but then bumps up to 16 the day after, all while they are clinically improving and are now no longer on oxygen and are tolerating PO, does that white count really matter? Are you going to change your management to treat a slightly higher white blood cell count? Definitely not. If the patient is clinically stable, you aren't getting any value from these labs. And not only that, you could be causing harm. Lots of studies have shown you can cause iatrogenic anemia in patients. If they're anemic to start with or their heart was already under stress, these daily labs are most certainly not helpful. There have been several studies that academic groups have looked at to try to lower these daily routine tests. They've tried educational sessions, posters on the wards, even reminders in the EMR. And these efforts sort of wane really quickly. They have minimum impact. But maybe, Cardi, the best way to order fewer tests is just to order fewer tests. <laughs> we teach our residents, how will this change your management? And also, Cardi, I love the paper that you found comparing routine phlebotomy to a nightly vampire visiting. That's pure right on prime gold. Yeah, I love that. I thought that was a fantastic analogy. Okay, so we're going to skip the routine labs. Order the labs that will help you change your management of a patient or that you think will be clinically relevant. Otherwise, please don't poke these poor people. This is why they come out of the hospital looking like they've been attacked by vampires. (laughs) Okay, next up is something that comes up a lot with my female patients who are in their 40s. Their periods are usually starting to change a bit around this time, and they come in wanting to know if they're perimenopausal. And they have read online that because of this, they need to have their FSH checked. Does this ever happen with your patients? Yeah, this definitely happens. The patients want to know if the menopause is approaching, if the normal changes in their cycle signal there's something that they should worry about. But when you look at the evidence, FSH levels are not generalizable between women or even for the same woman on a day-to-day basis. And the FSH levels cannot predict when perimenopause will start. So let's get the focus off the lab test and onto how the patient is feeling. That's right. And Choosing Wisely recommends this. They say avoid doing random FSH levels in an attempt to identify the transition to menopause. So bring the focus back to the patient away from that lab test. I got another one for you that I think can help save your healthcare region some serious resources that can be freed up for tests that really matter. Oh, I think they're going to like this one. Yes, please. I'm intrigued. Tell me. Cholesterol measurements. Oh, yes. This is a big one. People at lower risk of cardiac disease, younger people, no family history that might indicate a familial disorder, no screening lipids. These are people who have a low ASCVD risk score regardless of their cholesterol level, and you're not even really considering a statin in them. So if you want to be picky, you could say, well, every 40-year-old should have at least one cholesterol to rule out a very high LDL. I could get on board with that. So if you want a friendly amendment, no repeat routine cholesterol for primary prevention ever. One cholesterol test ever for lower risk people. Okay, but now just to play devil's advocate a bit here, what about secondary prevention, like for people who have vascular disease? 
Yeah, for people with coronary artery disease, ischemic stroke, peripheral vascular disease, they should be on a statin anyway. You can fire and forget. Put them on a high-dose statin regardless of their lipid level and never check another lipid test. So there, Cardi, we just cut your cholesterol testing at least in half. Oh my gosh. I mean, I have some people who are being, you know, diabetic and they're hypertensive and they get probably lipid tests every three months. So you probably cut it more than by half. And the entire region up here is very grateful to you. Thank you. Perfect. All right. Have you got time for one more? Yeah. What do you have? I want to talk about urine cultures. So let's say that you see a young woman who isn't pregnant and she's coming in, she has dysuria, she's got urgency, frequency, and that sense of incomplete emptying. And it sounds pretty easy, right? You get a urine sample, and even though you know you're going to treat her anyway, you say to the nurse, let's do a UA in culture just to be sure. But this really is not necessary. Yeah, that's a great one, Cardi. The evidence shows that empiric treatment for suspected UTI is acceptable unless the UTI is complicated, recurrent, or you have concerns for treatment failure. Now, there may be some exceptions. If the patient is pregnant or only has one kidney or is immune compromised or has recurrent symptoms, then this is a different issue. But in straightforward run-of-the-mill cystitis, you don't need the culture. Not only that, but if the patient tells you they have typical symptoms, an antibiotic can help even if the culture ends up being negative. A culture is not perfectly sensitive. So true. Now, what about for geriatric patients? We often get patients brought in by their families because the patient's urine smells bad. The patient's totally fine otherwise. They aren't sick. They're not delirious. They're totally functioning at their normal baseline. What do you do in that situation? Yeah, Choosing Wisely Canada reminds us that for geriatric patients, there's no need to send urine for culture or a urinalysis unless the patient has symptoms, even if the urine is foul-smelling. Now, symptoms could be urinary tract specific or could be confusion, fever, or even falls. But if they're otherwise fine and just have smelly urine, no need to go any further. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you chatting with me about this, Steve. It's a really good reminder that just because there are tests out there doesn't mean we have to use them. We didn't even get to talk about routine labs at annual exams and routine preoperative testing labs, which are two of my favorite topics. Oh my gosh, the pre-op labs. I'm like, what is this going to do for anybody? <laughs> but maybe next time we could do another right on prime snack for that. Yeah. But for now, let's try to cause less harm to our patients and avoid unnecessary procedures that cost the system money and that we have to follow up on even when they don't change our management. Yes, definitely. Thanks, Cardi. That was a great chat. Take care, everybody.